Well, let me pray for our time and we'll, we'll jump into Luke 22. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that you've shown us through your Son. And as we study this, this passage this morning, of it starts the, the suffering that Jesus went through. I pray that you would reveal your truth to us in a way that brings you the honor you deserve and sanctifies us in the process. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just a reminder, Luke, kind of the, the theme verse for Luke is, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Luke was written by a Gentile. So it's clear that salvation is not just for the Jews. Salvation is for for all people, um, all who will believe. And so I'm thankful for that, as I think most of us are are Gentile. So that's a a good thing. We're going to cover the first half of of Luke 22. Um, It starts out, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So, what did Passover commemorate? It's the the Exodus, right? So if if you go back to Exodus 12, it's really celebrating the deliverance that the Israelites experienced. It's deliverance from slavery. Um, they had been in, enslaved in Egypt for like 400 years and um, it was the 10th of the plagues so the last of those plagues and the the firstborn son of every household was to die but it turned out to be only for the Egyptians because the Israelites slaughtered this Passover lamb and spread spread some of the blood on their door frame. And so the Lord would pass over that house. That's how it's got its name of Passover. And their firstborn would be spared. I'm a firstborn, so that story is kind of like, ooh, I'm the firstborn son. That would be kind of, that would have been a tough, tough call. I have one son. My dad was an only son. Uh, You know, it would have been, it would have been traumatic. Then the next verse is, to, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. I don't think it's a coincidence these two verses are next to each other. Do you see the connection? In verse 1, it's talking about the Passover. And then in verse 2, they're talking about seeking to put him to death. Jesus was a fulfillment of the Passover prophecy. What were they planning? Evil, right? They're planning 
these chief priests, they're probably Sadducees and the scribes were Pharisees. They recognized Jesus' influence and popularity was growing, so they wanted to kill him. But they feared the people, so they were cautious in their approach. You know, his popularity was a challenge to their authority, and they were using their authority for personal gain, as Jesus has shown during his ministry. So they wanted to stop it, but they feared the people. So what has to happen next? Well, okay, it's God's will for him to be sacrificed as the Passover. If if they were afraid to do it, he's like, okay, God's going to use another means. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. You see the puzzle pieces coming together. It's the Passover. They want to kill him, but they're afraid of the people. Well, then, no, Satan enters to Judas to betray him. So the puzzle pieces are coming together for for Jesus to suffer and be sacrificed and fulfill Scripture. What was the last recorded incident involving Satan? When did he show up before? There's really only one other time in Luke that we see him. So that gives you a little bit of a hint. It was in the desert, right? The temptation. So the temptation of Christ in Luke 4 was the last mention of Satan. He may have, you know, he undoubtedly was involved elsewhere, but he's not mentioned. It's it's interesting. At the end of that temptation, it says, Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. Seemed like this is an opportune time for God to use evil for our good. It's apparently going to happen. So how was he involved in the plan to kill Jesus? Well, you know, we read it. He's going to use Judas to betray him. That was going to bring about his arrest and and ultimately his, his crucifixion. So what did Judas do? Well, he... He went to the Jewish leaders and, and expressed a desire to betray him. As they gladly approved, they even agreed to pay him. And then he started to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus when he was away from crowds. So they're fearful and they expressed. They're fearful of the crowd's response if they try to arrest Jesus. And they express that fear to Judas. So he's going to find a way to arrest him away from the crowds. And we're going to see how that happens.
Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So he gives them instructions, right? To give you a little bit of a how this scene would look, um, Homes at that time were typically one story, but then people often added a a second story with outside stairs just for a guest in case they had somebody come and stay with them. Um, There weren't that many places for people to just go stay, so if you had somebody come visit, you needed to provide housing, and so they often would add a little room on the top. This one was a banquet room, is how it was set up. Um, Nisan 14 was the day the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. So he sent Peter and John to complete the preparations for, for them to have this Passover meal. They didn't know where to go, so he told them to to go find this man in in Jerusalem that's carrying a jar of water. And then the owner of the house is going to show you a guest room where we can have the Passover meal. So what happens? Exactly what you would expect to happen. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So they find everything just the way Jesus told them. Now, this could either be because Jesus knew this man and arranged it ahead of time. Or it could be because he's omniscient and he knew what events would happen beforehand. I think it's more the second, but we don't really know. Either way, it's showing you that Jesus was in control of his destiny. Yes, he was he was the the victim of these of awful suffering and treatment, but it was by choice. He agreed to follow that plan to fulfill his father's will. What would these preparations include? You guys have done this, right? You've had a a Passover meal, so you have to prepare different things for it, right? It's not your normal food that you have. So, There's bitter herbs, there's unleavened bread, and then wine had to be gathered. 
it's like three o'clock in the afternoon when they would sacrifice the animal. The blood would be splashed on the altar. The fat and the kidneys were burned on the altar. But the rest of the meat was then taken to be roasted for the Passover meal. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's the hour? When did their day start? It's at sundown for them. So it's, it's right around sunset is when a day starts. For us, it's midnight. But for them, it was right at sundown. Um, they defined their day differently. Yeah, the, the day of the Passover meal would begin at sundown. And it continued till the next sundown. So you can see how Jesus would be sacrificed on that day. They would have the what we call the Last Supper in that evening, but that's at the very beginning of the day. Then through the night of that same day, and it continues to be that same day the next day when he'll be sacrificed. And they brought him down from the cross before sundown. So it's all in that one 24-hour period. So what's the message Jesus had for his disciples? I want to eat this meal with you, and then I'm not going to eat it again until something says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What needed to be fulfilled? It's it's the true Passover, right? So what had to be accomplished... was redemption from sin. The original Passover redeemed the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians, but they were still in slavery to sin. Other translations have, until its meaning is fulfilled, is another way it's stated, Jesus' sacrificial death fulfilled the redemption for sin for all with with faith in, in the Messiah. See, he took the penalty for our sin. He gave us power over sin. And he'll one day take us from the presence of sin. That's what his sacrifice did for us. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, 
Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. How would he have normally handled this Passover meal? This taking of the cup is, it's, it's kind of like a toast. But rather than drinking of it himself, he, he says he would not drink wine again until he had fulfilled God's plan. So it's, it's almost like a Nazarite vow that I'm, I'm not going to drink again until I've fulfilled my father's plan. For the kingdom of God comes. Then it says, and he took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, what do we call this? It's communion, right? Or, you know, there are different names for it. We commonly call it communion. Um, this broken bread, this unleavened bread, this was called the bread of affliction in the Passover meal. And it's because it, first of all, it didn't taste very good, but more than that, it was a reminder of the affliction the Israelites had suffered. He used this bread to symbolize his body that was going to be sacrificed. His sacrifice is sufficient for all mankind, but it's only effective for those who believe in him. His command was to, to make this a regular event to honor his sacrificial death. It's the basis of our partaking of communion. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what's the significance of this cup of wine? What's the significance of shed blood? It's a covenant. Yeah. This was likely the third cup associated with Passover. It's a cup of blessing. And he said it represents his blood, which would be shed for our redemption. It's the second portion of, of Christian communion. God sealed covenants with blood in the Old Testament. So he's sealing this new covenant with the blood of his son, the life of Jesus Christ sealed the new covenant for us. Without his death, the new covenant has no authority or power. His death brought us forgiveness and eternal life. Without his death, we would still be subject to God's wrath for sin. 
His death paid the penalty. He was the substitute for us. He took God's wrath so that we could have God's righteousness. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this? What impact do you think this had on their Passover mood? What? Somebody's going to betray us. I mean, it's obvious from the dialogue, they don't have a clue that Judas is, is not a true disciple. His outward behavior had confused them. I mean, they trusted him to the point where he was their treasurer. Jesus had told them he must suffer, but they, they haven't grasped it. They don't fully understand what it means. They're probably enjoying this Passover celebration, and they're caught off guard by this announcement he was going to betray them. Judas had been a trusted disciple. Um, at this point, he probably got up and left the Passover meal. Other, uh, the other gospel accounts say that Jesus told him to go do what, what you're going to do. This next part really shows where the disciples' hearts are at this point. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What does this reveal about them? Who are they thinking about? They're no different than you and I. They're thinking about me, myself, and I. They spent three years with Jesus, and they still struggle with pride and selfishness. Yeah, no different than the rest of fallen humanity. They'd just been told that Jesus was going to suffer and die. There was going to be a new covenant, and somebody was going to betray Jesus, Judas. And they're still focused on the messianic kingdom. Where will we be in the kingdom? What's my position going to be? Oh, I'm going to be the greatest. No, no, I will be. I mean, they're arguing over something that's out of their control. If you remember back in, in Luke 9, with the transfiguration, God had spoken, and they had the same kind of argument even though they'd been told at that point that Jesus was going to be betrayed and killed, they still argue over, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? They don't recognize that the church age precedes the messianic kingdom. 
We're living in that church age now. And it's the time when when the gospel gets spread throughout mankind. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So they've had this discussion of who's going to be the greatest. How does he respond to them? He corrects them, right? He basically tells them, look, the earthly government principles are not the way that the eternal kingdom will be governed. Earthly kings, he calls them Gentiles, they use their position to dominate others and and be served by others. But it's not going to be that way in the eternal kingdom. Leaders are going to serve others. Jesus modeled this during his ministry. I never got to fly on the corporate jet um, with ExxonMobil. I never was anywhere near near it. But but the rumor always was that they didn't have stewardesses on the jet. Um, but the the most senior person on the flight would serve drinks to everyone else on on the flight or snacks or whatever it was. That was their way. And so I thought it was a neat neat tradition that they did that. It kind of fits this servant leadership role. So I brought in this portion from John just to give us a little fuller picture. Um, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So what was the action that he took earlier in that evening? It's the same evening to illustrate the servant leadership. He washed their feet. That was the role of the lowest servant to wash the feet of the guest at a, at a meal or at a gathering. If you remember, you know, Peter and his arrogance. No, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, if, you, if I don't wash your feet, I don't have anything to do with you. Well, 
but not my feet. Wash my whole body. No, no, you don't need that. Before he identified Judas as his betrayer, he washed the feet of the disciples. He told them he did this as an example for them to follow. He knew they were going to have this argument about who is the greatest. So he had done this, and they still argue over who's going to be the greatest. I'm sure I would have been the first one in the argument. But when we look at the disciples now, it's like, what were they thinking? But we have the Holy Spirit they didn't have. They had the Lord with them. So I don't. They're fallen just like the rest of us. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he does give them a commendation in these verses. He commends them. At this point, Judas has left. He commends them for their faithfulness. He tells them that each one is going to rule in his kingdom. You're going to get to serve on thrones over the tribes of Israel. Uh, This is not going to be like an earthly rule. It's going to be a different type of rule. Dramatically different. He's told them that. So what what are some lessons out of this passage? Jesus, obviously, um, he is focused on fulfilling his father's plan. The more I think about that, the more amazing it is because of all that he was going to go through the suffering is horrendous, and he knew it, and yet he stays focused on fulfilling his father's will, despite the hardship that he's going to encounter. And then he modeled servant leadership. And told us that that's the way that we should lead. That's, the, that's how we should lead others. So what are some application to this? What impact does hardship have on your commitment? Boy, when, what's the old saying? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. I'm not always that way, you know. It, if things aren't going well, I tend to to pull back and and go into the self-preservation mode. 
If Jesus had done that, we would have been in a world of hurt. He didn't. And then, how would other people describe your leadership? Is it authoritative or is it servant-like? What, what are some examples of servant leadership? How can a, a father, the head of a household, be a servant leader? Yeah, it's supporting the family, but it's, he prioritizes his family above his work. I mean, the work is important to support your family, but it can't be the only thing you do. You got to take your boys camping. You gotta go to your your kids' ball games. You gotta, I mean, there's all sorts of things you've gotta do with them. You gotta force them to do a tough mutter. I don't know if that's a good one or not. <laughs> do you force them to do a tough mutter? Is that part of? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's a requirement. That's a requirement. Okay. <laughs> you can check that box. So what about a what about a, a mom? They have to do a tough mother too. Oh, they have to do a tough mother too. Okay. You know, one of the things a mother this is more important now than it, it's been before. You've got to defend your home against the immorality of society. And, you know, 10 years ago, I would have thought, well, it can't get much worse. And it is an order of magnitude worse now than it was then. The depravity of our society is, is the norm. It's not the minority. At least that's what the media tells us. So, so mothers need to defend their home. Um, Christian leaders need to humbly serve. Um, it, it may require personal sacrifice, but you got to do it. It will lead to persecution. You, you have to endure that and not let it, not let that hardship drive you away from your God's calling. Finishing strong is, is something that many, um, many characters in the Bible fail to do. But it's something God has called us to do. We need to finish strong in our walk. And that's, you know, fulfilling God's call despite the persecution and turmoil that that will, will bring.
Jesus is a perfect example of how to do that. Any closing thoughts or questions? Let me, let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for the example that Jesus Christ gave us of how he endured such hardship more than we could imagine or certainly bear. He endured it on our behalf to fulfill your will and accomplish our redemption. Father, thank you that he fulfilled every prophecy given for the Messiah, including being sacrificed as the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Father, thank you for what Jesus Christ accomplished for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Help us to to finish strong in our Christian walk, to spread that good news, that gospel message to the lost and dying world around us. Help us to be servant leaders that don't follow the example of the world, but follow your example in how we serve others. Father, I pray that you'd continue to use your word this morning for your glory and our good now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.